communications and friends of all descriptions indeed have rallied to make this 25th anniversary time unique in the story of our society. Gratitude is in the forefront of the very finest of human emotions. And I'm sure you join with me in the conviction that we haven't the words to express what we feel. We can only say it in the unspoken language of the heart. And to him who presides over us all, our gratitude that we have come so far, that his grace has been so beneficial. And that our course not only by an occasional squall has been characterized by fair winds and in our still little progress we have sailed free before. the words and you have it. I cannot recall speaking for Lois and me any happier time since they had began because this is the concluding event of our year of 25th anniversary celebration and it fittingly ends where my story began. And Lois, too, you must know, is a Vermonter by adoption, having spent a great part of her life here. So this is the homecoming of the prodigals. This is my native land. So we are stood. Last night, our meeting took place in the chapel on that fine campus where stand the halls of learning. And I made a rather feeble attempt to give folks a sort of an interior view, at least estimating how we think AA works. In a sense, I think that was a great deal of presumption 
prideful act on the part of one who couldn't get through college because he was so dumb. And some of my discourse was exposition. And exposition is only compellingly interesting in the hands of a, an expert. So when in AA we teach, well, we don't teach, we carry the message. We do it by the telling of vital and meaningful personal experience. And there is nothing like the experience that you've had and that I've had A's method. We know this. So it occurs to me that at the risk of tiring a little some of the AAs here, that perhaps I could hit the high points in AA, illustrating it out of my own story. I shall say some things that are rather revealing, which might be a little bit jarring, perhaps, to some of our friends who are not aware yet of the necessity that we AAs must stop living alone and must share our defects as well as our assets if we are to stay alive and more especially to carry this message. My first recollection when very young was lying in my crib looking out of the parsonage window at East Orchard, Vermont and up behind in front of me and high above was dear Mount Aeolus. And looking at the stop and childish fancy, I wondered if I would ever be big enough to climb so high. Then I poignantly recall how my father and mother decided to call it quits. We were then living in Rutland. And how my great old grandpappy and grandmother adopted me as their own down there in East Georgia. And they were a wonderful couple. And they were wonderful examples. And they taught me well. But you know how it is with us folks up here in New England. There is a kind of reserve. A reluctance which I think we feel to be 
sort of good taste in talking about two intimate things. We folks here in Vermont don't like to wear the heart on sleep. Well, I was a tall and gawky kid for my age. And I was always losing out in fights. I remember one that occurred in the front yard, and because I lost, my grandfather loved me for losing. I developed uh, what our Adlerian friends would call an inferiority complex. And I felt that I wasn't like the other kids. And there wasn't anybody I could tell of my childish anguish. I didn't dare. Our tradition here, as marvelous as it is in some respects, is a little shy on this kind of communication. So I couldn't tell Grandpa and Grandma, and God knows I couldn't confess it to the kids. So it was brought up in me. And I remember in the period maybe from 10 to 14 how I was awfully depressed. Well, my family had given me an awful tough physique. And as it began to harden up, I began to get competitive. And this competitiveness in me was something more than just childish ambition. Sure, every kid wants to be the president, at least of the steel corporation. But this is a passing fancy. But me, I suppose, is a compensation for these very real fears and inferiorities. I determined that I had to be number one in everything I chose to be number one. I had to be what, in the privacy of that upstairs attic bedroom, I used to call to myself, I'm going to be a number one guy. And you see, I still am the leading drunk of the world.
You see, those kids hadn't quite licked me for keeps. But now I came into a situation, if you will forgive this intimacy, where I was licked by keeps, and this time I was licked by death. By now we're in boarding school. Yep, I'm president of the class, picture on the team, you know. Life was great. Grandfather was generous. There was always a tin cigar box full of silver, and my allowance was each week was all the dough that I could pick up in one hand in quarter, which was a lot of money for them. So life was wonderful. I had compensated. My fears were forgotten. I wasn't just happy, I was ecstatic. There was one little difficulty, however. I was so damn homely, the girls didn't seem to be paying much attention. <laughs> but finally one did, the minister's daughter. And this completed it. God implanted in us instincts to be secure, to be somebody, and to make. And when these don't overreach themselves, and turn neurotic and turn into boomerangs, this is okay. So here it was. This completed the triad. Until one morning, the principal came into chapel, and out of a clear sky, he said that Bertha had died the night before. The bottom went out of my world, and it would out of any kid's world. But in my case, it stayed out. And here we go into an area that has something to do, I think, with drinking, at least mine. Sure, the average kid would have been shocked and desolated. But if he was a natural kid, he'd have had his arm around another one three months at that stage for Not me. I got a depression. I don't graduate. Why is it? Of course you and I know. Because this implacable ego that must have success and it must have prestige and it must dominate and it must be number one, was utterly defeated by death. Plain as a pipe staff. So, okay. Three years passed. I start in over here at Norwich. I kind of dribble along. I flip on the ice. Put my wrist out of joint. Wouldn't have the doctor fix it. I have to go to my ma, who is an osteopath down in Boston. When I come back, all of a sudden I can't catch my breath, and I think I got heart failure. 
And the doctor slapped me on the fanny and says, here's some castor oil. What in God's name are you talking about? There's nothing the matter with you. So I have a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown. That's what they... I guess they still call it that up here. It's a good one. So I, I, I leave school because I was so stupid in math that I wouldn't have finished it. And you say, well, what's this got to do with drinking? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I think it had plenty. So then comes along launch. And she lifts me up out of this. Tenderly. And she's been lifting me up ever since. All through 20 years of increasing alcoholism until once more I face utter and complete defeat. In the interval, the same old compensations, money made in Wall Street, applause, now we're on the way to be president of something or other, Drinking in that time to be more grandiose or frustrated to kill the pain of the depression or if angered to plot fresh connivances of revenge. Now, these are all human characteristics and what I submit these were very exaggerated characteristics. These weren't just habits. These were compulsions. As we observed the other night when I quoted somebody on what a drunk is like, he said, well, a drunk is a human being, all right, but a damn sight more so. And that certainly was me. So drinking gets into the picture. And I'm drinking just not to relax. I'm not drinking for a companionship. No, I'm really drinking to cure what ails me emotionally. I'm drinking to cure depression. I'm drinking, I think, to make good on power and revenge at times. Although I wasn't too vengeful a guy. And this kind of drinking, not in all cases, but in many, I'll vouch, right here in this audience. This is the kind of habit of using alcohol in this abnormal way. And that leads into this dire cul-de-sac which people call alcoholism. And so finally the crash comes. Meanwhile, Lois and I in between have the good life. There's no surface indications of anything that seemed to be wrong. I have a cousin down here in Rutland who runs a clothing company and I was in there for lunch, and 
yesterday, the day before yesterday, and he said, you know, Bill, he said, this is the first time I ever got around to liking you. He said, I don't know whether you even remember it or not, but you came in this store when my father was alive, and he was a man of very fixed uh, opinions, and he didn't have much time for lushes, and boy, were you tanked up, and you rolled up in front of this establishment with a packard about 22 feet long, one of them roaster jobs, and you staggered in here, and you began to patronize us. And you, from East Dorset, began to call us hicks. And you began to talk about what you were doing in the stock market. And then just to impress us, you took a phone off the hook at a spot where everybody in the store could hear it. And you proceeded to do some trading over the phone with your New York broker, Grumpy the Monkey. He said, you know, we didn't like it, and it kind of stuck with me, and I'm glad, I'm sorry it stuck so long. But uh, he says, it's all right now, Bill. Let's be frank. These are the clues to what ailed me. What ailed me was a deformed emotional character and structure. And I was really drinking booze to either forget the pain of it or increase the ecstasy of it. And this becomes an obsession. And finally, inside of three months after I was patronizing Cousin Carlton, there was a great crash in the market. And, of course, in those days, the more money you owned, the richer you were in the stock market, you understand? I'm afraid that's getting to be the fashion in, not in stocks, but in other matters just now. Anyway, I'm wiped out. Bother me, oh, no, I'm sturdy Vermont stock. These fellas jumping out the window because they lost their dough. Oh, I can do this again. Well, by this time, I'm a real lush. By this time, I'm a lone wolf in Wall Street. And my associates were glad to see me go. And there wasn't any place for me. And little by little, I crawled up to that second complete, absolute, and utter defeat. Your chances are to come back. I once signed a contract that I'd operate a syndicate and during its life I would not drink. And if I did drink even one drink, I would lose my chance. And I still took, as a Vermonter, a great pride in my signature on a contract. You know, even if I was a drunk, there are certain things that we folks up here don't do. We honor our word, we pay our bills. But I didn't have a habit of drinking. I had a lunacy of drinking. And I destroyed that contract inside of two months. Meanwhile, the physical side was catching up with me. 
I was beginning to show up in the hospital. I desperately wanted to stop. And again, I began to know the bitterness of other defeats. And it was different and worse and more humiliating this time because it was a self-inflicted defeat. So at length, the day comes with so many of you wives and friends of us folks have seen. When Lois asked the doctor what scores, and he shakes his head and says, Well, I've seen a great many thousand cases of alcoholism. Now and then, here and there, there is a recovery. But very rarely at the stage that your husband is in, he's verging on brain damage. He wants to get well. I thought we could educate it out of him. But now, Lois Wilson, I think, I hate to say this. I think you can't do anything about it. Well, like so many of you wives out there, Lloyd said, what then? And he said, I think you'll have to lock him up. At the rate he's gone. He might be mad or dead within a year. And lying on my bunk upstairs, I knew the verdict of science on me, and I knew the score of the experience on me, and then again, I knew the awful agony and humiliation of completing an absolute defeat. Because as my doctor said, and he's the first guy that ever told me this was a sickness, as well as a gluttony and a culpability, as he said to Lois, your husband's habit of drinking has developed into an obsession which no resource of his can break. And something has gone wrong with his chemistry. Inaccurately, I call it an allergy for short, but he won't tolerate this stuff. So, therefore, he's caught in the age-old dilemma. He has an obsession that condemns him to drink against his will and against his interest. But if he does this, he has the sensitivity of the body that will guarantee madness and death if he keeps it up. So it looked like the end of the line until another drunk came along. And I know darn well he'd been defeated. I'd become a kind of a student of alcoholism then, and uh, he was what we call summer folks down in East Dorset. He'd gone boarding school with me for a year and came to a nice Albany family, and he got worse and worse. He was the youngest 
boy, and I guess he was trying to keep up with Pa and the older brothers and got frustrated. He was on the booze in a very bad way. And he used to come up to Manchester out of season and raise hell and... Well, you know, I think folks around home are tolerant about the cider keg and, you know, are lushing a bit, but this got too tough. He ran his father's new packard down Manchester Street at I don't know how many miles an hour, and he pulled off the road in his blindness, and he ran into the side of a house, and he pushed the side of the house in... And he puts the kitchen stove over several feet. And, of course, there's a special providence for fools and drunks, and he's completely unhurt, and the car, the door would open. So, being so arrived in the inside of the kitchen, and the scared farmer's wife sitting in the corner, and the kitchen stove spouting, my friend Abby steps out and he says, how about a cup of coffee? <laughs> so at this point, the law, which in Vermont, can deal out even-handed justice but when the provocation is enough, it can be started. So, the neighbor says, it's time to bug this guy in Marlboro. And they were just about to do this when Abby ran into a friend of short duration who himself had been a drunk who was in the old Oxford groups from which groups we got our idea of, you know, uh, self-survey and admitting we were licked and making restitution and praying to God as we understood them. You know, all these ideas were borrowed. We drunks didn't invent this thing at all. We just borrowed it. At any rate, have you got some of those ideas? And as he said to me a little while later, over a picture of Jim that I had on my kitchen table in Clinton Street, Brooklyn. The moment I became willing to admit that I was completely licked. That meant I began to feel released. And there was another concomitant. I became willing to get more honest with myself. I got willing to try to make amends for the harm I had done. I became willing to help other people without the usual ego rewards. No dough, no applause, no nothing. Or just to help for helping's sake, and if any dividends came in, that was fine, and if they didn't, that was good too. That was the idea. So over the kitchen table, he gives me these ideas. And me, of course, I'm drinking again. And because he transmitted these ideas, they struck with redoubled force, even greater force than my doctor could convey, because though he could identify with uh, me 
To a great degree, he was a little outside the club. He wasn't a booze hound. But here was one that I knew was on the way to the bug house. Here was one that I knew to be hopeless. And he sat before me in spectacle of recovery. So he built into me a line of communication that ran deeper into my platinum iridium ego than anybody had ever got before. And I was deeply stirred. I was deeply impressed because I saw he had something more than just being on the water wagon for another spell. You could sense this. So, I can't go, however, for the grace of God business. Had one of these dandy scientific educations that said that the egg came before the hand. And, you know, deterministic in that business. Too bright for God. Fail, yes, believe it or not. At length, I go to the hospital, and they sober me up. And finally, in utter despair, I say, if there is a God, will he show himself? And he did, and the place lit up. And I found myself in a new world of consciousness, where more or less I've been able to remain by his grace ever since. And this happened to me suddenly. And naturally, I wondered, why did this happen to drunks only once in a while? And why did this happen to me? When somebody brought in a book written by the father of modern psychology, William James, and in it, the people who had had these transforming experiences were mostly defeated, utterly defeated in some controlling area of life. And I said, that was me. And not only my experience defeated me, but the verdict of my own God of science so just supposing that one drunk pours this dose into the next drunk, that after they got identified and the customer said, yeah, that's me, that's me, I got this obsession, I got this allergy. One of the troubles with these sudden experiences, by the way, which I don't think are much better than the gradual ones, which all of us have, the same thing. I think my ego busted all at once, and most of you folks have ones at least, but... <laughs> anyway, the end result is just the same, and lots better in many cases than in mine. Because of the sudden experience, I figured, you know, I, uh, the number one man stuff came back again, you know, specially anointed, going to fix all the drunks in the world. Nothing happens for six months, which is just the way it should have been. Until I came up against another Vermonter, or dear old Dr. Bob in St. John's Road. You know, we Vermonters are an awful obstinate lot. And I think Dr. Bob and I, in a way, are champs. Last night, you know, I was speaking of the unique things that Vermont had contributed to his founding and favorite sons and... I disclaim much credit for AA, but I think it was the president of the university himself, a Virginian, who reminded me that Vermont 
was the first day to join the union. I remember that in the little red schoolhouse. And then after a while, he said, well, uh, Vermont, too, was the first to liberate the slaves. Maybe there weren't too many of them, but they did it. And I didn't say this out loud, but I might have said to him that because we Yankees here, with all our virtues, are nevertheless the most stubborn brand of Yankees in the whole world, that Vermont, I do believe, has the distinction of being the last state in the Union to join up our tsunami. So I meet Dr. Bob. Well, Jerry wanted to get well. Jerry was a doctor, didn't know too much about alcoholism. And meanwhile, my own doctor said, why don't you stop preaching at these guys? Why don't you carry the message? Why don't you tell your own experience of drinking? How hopeless it is. Pour it into them what us doctors say about it. How you got to have help. How you can't do it all on your own. How your willpower doesn't work anymore on the booze question. May work on some things that'll help get you out of the booze, but not on the booze. Pour this into them. This makes the deflation at depth that William James talked about throughout his book. Well, Smithy, and, uh, boy, uh, he was a good church man, that is, when he could get there. And, uh, gracious, he knew more about spiritual matters than I did, and, uh, besides, he was a doctor, and uh, I was just a layman, so what should I tell him about the alcoholism? Well, at any rate, I, I poured it into him what the medical verdict was after I told him my drinking story. And you know the result. It struck him at death. And if you read his story, which is first in the story section of the big book, he makes the statement that this was the first human being in my whole experience that seemed to fully understand what the matter was with me, despite the fact that we were There's the crux of it. The unique communication. Principles are old, but the unique communication, one drop to the next. And one more element was added in this conversation. I had looked up Dr. Bob in Akron because I needed another drunk to talk to. I didn't need a drunk to reform. I needed a drunk to be sure that I didn't get drunk. And here was mutuality. On the spot to become A was struck. And with this, these couple pieces of tender, we struck another spark. The third man on the bed in Akron. And it's been almost literally true ever since. The biblical promise that where two or three are gathered together in his name under these auspices, well, he's an A group. So very, very slowly the worldwide spread of this society began. And is now stretched into 70 U.S. possessions and foreign lands. It's in many languages. As I was saying to some of our wonderful French members, and there are 3,000 of them right across the line up here, 
Perhaps one of the most affecting, moving experiences I ever had in AA was the day when in Montreal I heard the large choir said for the first time in Frank. It moved me very strangely, and I now see why. It meant that our unique communication was going to cross barriers of geography and language on all of the seas and surmount the conflict of this conflict-ridden world. Just a large point, Frank. That was the meaning. To give our friends here an idea, let me conclude by just a couple of more junkyards. I might put a little more meat in the middle of the sandwich by saying that between 1940 and 50, our new age here must realize this stuff is designed a great deal for our friends that may be present who want to learn about it. The recovery formula for the individual was a, above ground. Was it for sure that I still pretty emotionally sick people could live and work together? And there was this time of the development of the tradition when we all felt exactly like those college on Rickon Vacker's wrath, tossing in a perilous sea. And the sea around us was alcohol, and we could be dumped into it at any minute, as a society. If we took wrong attitudes as a society, if we didn't keep ourselves out of money by staying poor, we couldn't get married to other enterprises and backworthy causes, because we'd better stick to our own land. We had to look to our frailties. In those years, as a society, our rule of action and conduct had literally to be lead us not into temptation. And so the traditions were formed. And every one of them was a contradiction of my own power drive. The common welfare shall come first. The informed group conscience is wiser than any leader. A man is a member if he says he's a member. Each group shall be autonomous. What, I couldn't run from New York? One single purpose. Schumacher, stick to thy last. No public controversy. We who love controversy. No government in any ordinary sense. We all-knowing... That God, in his love, was drawing us on the one side, and Barley Corn was pointing the pistol at us and saying, You can form as individuals or groups, or I will kill you. And we had already seen many die who couldn't or wouldn't conform. So that there was no human sanction needed here. So this singularly free society of God. We've since found that many of those theories are unreasonable. We only know that at the top public level, we mustn't create great public figures. 
this is not the question. The legitimacy of these public symbols outside our society, but this is just too dangerous for us. We who clamored for prestige and power and so. And we'd better stay as a society poor, regardless of how rich we are as individuals. And believe me, we're not doing bad. This society of drunks, their collective salaries and income are probably a billion and a quarter of dollars a year. God is provided liberally as a byproduct of the buy. These indeed are gifts. Then we come to this question of public relations. Why, every other AA is a promoter, a poet. And I like to think that I'm in a championship class, too. But luckily, we've got a conservative wing in AA. And they're like the guys on working backers' rafts who said... Okay. Let's have courage. Let us pray to God for strength. But let nobody on this raft play God. Nor hog the food and water. I like that for God. So by 1950, we had emerged from this. And many early fears had been cast aside. And the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous, which you heard read, evolved. Then spurred by friends of all descriptions, the worldwide spread of Alcoholics Anonymous went on a pace. I think, for example, and this is a classic story in a very ancient tradition, I think of the early group at Greenwich, Connecticut. And it waxed rather stronger, and one of its members was a Norwegian. And he hadn't been back to Norway for 20 years. And he'd been ashamed to write because he was a drunk. And after he was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, about 12 months, his coffee shop, or rather the one managed by his wife, became a great rendezvous for the boys. And everybody liked George and his Norwegian wife. But nobody suggested this to George. George and his wife got this idea. Because at last they had written to Norway saying they were alive and well. And they told what had happened to their family. And how George had been released from his thrall in the booth. And the letter had reached the family of a brother. And a frantic missive came back saying, Your brother is dying of what we now see is this awful malady. 
What shall we do? The sole asset in material goods in the world was this tiny coffee shop belonging to George and his wife. And like that charger in the good book, they sold all they had. And it was just about enough to buy a one-way or a round-trip ticket to Oslo and to stay there a little. And to carry the message, the man had his alcoholism and the wife, her anguish in trying to cope with it and her relief. And they only carried with them a little pamphlet put out by a local nearby group, which they had laboriously translated into Norwegian, a rather forgotten tongue. And with their, all of their savings so invested, they landed at the airport outside Oslo and made their way down to the brother's house on the edge of the fjord. The brother was a feather. Sure enough, he was stricken and very badly. But their hopes were high. They were filled with the joy of carrying the message. And they And in the anguish of this hangover, 
said, John, I begin to think differently. Tell me about those strange alcoholics in America and their 12 points. So God told the story. And his brother, the recipient, reached out for the grace that you and I know is there, and in his case, he sobered instantly, just like this. And I think he's still alive to this day, though George is gone. And what did he do? Well, he was a printer at the newspaper there, and so he could sneak in little ads saying, hey, it comes down. And he ran them for months, and he didn't get one reply. You know, it ain't here, doesn't cost you anything, pictures up drunk. Send post office box XYZ draw. No dice. And just as he was about to give it up, the wife of one of those delightful uh, proprietor the uh, wife of a drunk and proprietor of one of those little sidewalk florist establishments. Found a frantic letter. And the result of the letter was that Drunk, by very good fortune, was bowled over at once, and then there were two of them. So with renewed help, they ran, ran more little ads. I suppose some of our tradition lawyers would call this promotion. And another one. And then there were three. And the batting average was wonderful. It was 100% for a time. And finally, they sobered up the station of the greatest psychiatrist in all Scandinavia. His name is Johnson. And he is a deeply religious man. Regardless of his convictions about the character of the fishworms that inhabit us at death. And he got the point right away. And he saw this transformation outrunning any belief or system of discipline in these men. And he looked at these 12 steps. And he opened up a hospital. And soon he got up and said, This is for us. On three years later, Lois and I alighted at the airport at Oslo in 1950. And sure enough, there at the customs, you could spot him there with the drunks. We couldn't understand a word in Norwegian. I guess we knew that Og was damned and Fisk was fish, a fish. That's about it. But there he was. And the communication, as she will tell you, was immediate. And we found that AA, that Norway was already calling with AA. Why, only recently, a year or two ago, we had a fellow affair here and with robes and prayer mat and everything. So 
turned out he was a kind of an ex shoot on the family owned the principality on the Red Sea that was one of the biggest oil fields in the world. And the Mohammedans uh, don't have Vermont tolerance for cyber barrels and things. Uh, they don't believe in drugs. So when Sonny went to the Bowers, they tossed him out of his system and the palace and everything else, so he came to America with his prayer mat to look into the AA. Well, he took a look and he went back, and the family and the Mohammedan authorities took a look at the 12 steps, and above all, they took a look at the deposed sheikh. And we still have a young man. So now the deposed sheep has his good back and his palace back. We have no news about the harem. <laughs> but this we know, that he corresponds with drunks all over the world. And there he is, sitting on a port in a port on the Red Sea. And you know we have loners on ships carrying this message all over the world, and the very first one of them sits down there, Jack Cloggett, on a standard oil tanker. And so when ships come to port, carrying our internationalists, the sheik has the boys up to the palace for a real AA meeting. So this is a part of the culmination. What we who witnessed it were sensible of when we first heard the Lord's Prayer. Spoken in French in Montreal. Yes, in spite of the times and its violence, the language of the heart, spoken by those in the kinship of suffering, will ultimately cross all barriers and reach those of our kind. Now, while this hour and this year has been one for joy and celebration and for gratitude. Unspeakable. We have been very careful in Alcoholics Anonymous not to make this a year for self-congratulation. And as spectacular as all of this has been, in terms of the difficulty of our malady, once a hopeless one virtually. We have been obliged to face the fact that here in the United States alone there are between five and six million alcoholics. Now, I don't mean American Legion lockers or, you know, cocktail party every night, do at lunch. No, no, that's panty waist drinking. We mean the real article, like we got them. Five to six millions of us. And AA is now passing a generation old. 
month we have been growing to 300,000, a melancholy procession of five million of telescopers that pass in front of us. And over yon where the procession begins, they are younger. And youth says, this can't happen to me. And over here where lunacy and deterioration has set in, well, we never give up hope, but realism must say it's too late. But out of this stream of misery of five million, we have drawn 300,000 in generations. That is one in a hundred. Why haven't we and the other agencies working so hard in this field been able to carry this message to them? You see, we still have a vast problem of communication. In the whole world, there are 25 million bucks. Now, at any particular time, there must be a million or two of these ready for what we got. How do we reach them? We can't do this all by ourselves. And ever since they began, other people have been doing it for us. And they are people of goodwill. They are people of understanding. They are people of humility. They are people of dedication. And our list of those friends in the early days made our beginning possible. And without that list drawing to legion, we could not have possibly sent. So it is not only us who carry the message. Our friends in communication and our friends in general throughout the world are carrying it. And we hope to make more progress. And we know we shall join hands with other agencies in the field, realizing that we shall do better together than in competition and in smug separation. This we are not going to do. Now then, this occasion, this evening, where the mayor has given us the keys to the city and has stood for us. Yesterday, where the governor and the halls of learning have said, yes, this is good, we believe. We have enlisted the public aid of new friends New lines of communication, which mean greater public goodwill, and above all, which mean recovery to those who still suffer alcoholism. May God bless all of our friends and all of those to come. And those who on this 
ceremonial two days of our 25th anniversary now stand in the forefront of all of these.